This is Midday Magazine for today, Friday, June 30th. I'm Thomas Copeland. The Petersburg School District did not include state funding when creating its budget for the next school year. So, when Governor Mike Dunleavy cut one-time funding for Alaska schools in half, Petersburg wasn't left scrambling, like many other districts. Erica Clunt-Painter is the district superintendent. She says they won't cut programs or staff this coming year, but not knowing the state's contribution until the summer is an ongoing problem. Sustainability-wise, you know, this is just not a good way to operate. You can't plan for the future. The governor's veto cuts nearly half a million dollars for Petersburg that the Alaska legislature had approved. Clint Painter says the district prioritizes putting available funds into classrooms, so the tight budget might not be visible to students and families. She says veteran staff wear a lot of hats and sometimes do multiple jobs. When they leave or retire, it often becomes clear just how much they were doing. Clint Painter says those experienced staff members help keep expenses low, but it can come at a cost. I think we're, we're in danger of some burnout um, with staff, with administrative staff, with some of our teaching staff. This year, the Petersburg Borough upped its funding to the school district for the first time in 20 years. The district requested and received $3 million, which is an increase of more than a million dollars. Petersburg School Board President Sarah Holmgren expressed frustration with the governor's education veto last week on KFSK's live talk show, Campus Connection but she said she was relieved by the borough's willingness to increase their contribution. Thankfully, our local government has stepped up and listened to the community, but also listened to our own school district administrators on what we needed, and they stepped up. Each year, the borough receives half a million dollars from the Secure Rural Schools program, which puts it into a rainy day fund. The federal program subsidizes schools close to national forest land that could have made money through the timber industry. This year, more than a million dollars of the borough's contribution comes from that rainy day fund. There is now just over three million dollars remaining in Petersburg's fund. In an email, Borough Finance Director Jody Tao said, We are all aware that the current allocation of $1.1 million is not sustainable in the long term and that we will need to work at finding additional revenues for the future to continue this level of funding for our school. The school district will start working on its next budget in early spring, so the borough has until then to come up with ideas for additional funding. Petersburg's Clausen Memorial Museum closed out Pride Month with a temporary art show honouring diverse gender identities and sexual orientations. KFSK's Shelby Herbert has a story on the exhibit and what pride means to the people who helped put it together. Paintings, weavings and an altered wedding dress are just a few of the things on display for the temporary art show at the Clausen Memorial Museum. Cindy Lagadakis is the museum's director, and she helped put the exhibit together. She says it's getting a lot of traffic. Um, we've had a lot of people through, and we've had some nice comments about it. And then we've had um, families with children come through, which has really been kind of fun, too. Suzanne Fuqua is one of the artists featured in the show. Her painting, titled Embryonic Journey, is the first thing you see when you step up to the exhibit. It's also one of the largest pieces on display. It's a huge rainbow awash with nature motifs, a sun, a raven, and a dozen eggs. Fuqua points out the symbols she painted across its surface. And I actually did in the sun, looked up one of the first symbols for uh, pride when it first started. 
So basically, for me, we are who we are. People are who they are. And um, I say choose love. Chelsea Tremblay is another artist whose work is on display, a piece titled What Slash Who? It's a collage assembled from pictures of different body parts. It sounds macabre, but it was uh, kind of... I used old calendars and I cut up pieces of people, so taking apart eyes and lips and legs and created a garden using different garden and naturescapes from other calendars. And then I had two hands holding the picture of one of our recent ultrasounds of a baby's head. Tremblay is talking about an ultrasound of her own unborn child. She says the work was inspired by her experience with being very visibly pregnant. Tremblay is in her third trimester of pregnancy. She also works a public-facing job selling books at Singley Alley Bookstore, where a lot of visitors ask her if she's having a boy or a girl. Oh, because it has to be one or the other. Do you disclose that? Uh, we know. We haven't been telling people. And a large part of that is from, I think it was a sociology class where they talked about people are likely to ascribe gendered characteristics to, again, this future person that hasn't seen the sky. They'll look at an ultrasound and describe them as beautiful or strong. And and so, again, you know, they haven't they haven't breathed air yet. Can we give them a chance? Back at the museum, Lagadakis finds herself drawn to a piece that was submitted anonymously. It's a gray T-shirt with a tag sticking out. Lagadakis says when she got the donation, her first instinct was to tuck the tag down. And then I realized, no, that's what this piece is about. Let it do its thing. (laughs) The shirt has words scratched into the front. They tell the story of the artist's experience with gender labels. And it says, it feels like a tag in my shirt. I don't hate the shirt. I like it, the way it looks and feels. But there is a tag. It itches. Sometimes I can ignore it, pretend it's not there. I'm reminded of the tag on every application trying to fit me in a box every time someone says, hey, ladies, every time I use a gendered bathroom. And I think that's an interesting reminder that we make assumptions about people and that may not fit the way they feel about themselves. Tremblay grew up in Petersburg. In her many years of advocacy here, She says she's encountered a lot of people who say they feel like they're the only queer person on the island. And then we tell them that's actually not at all true. There's actually quite a few of us. We just all tend to feel that way. (laughs) And so if this is something that can help people feel a little bit less alone, just knowing that we're out here. The Pride Art Show is on display at the Clausen Memorial Museum through today, June 30th. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. A major study of one of the state's largest marine environments is underway. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration conducts bottom trawl surveys to compile fisheries and environmental data across the country. And as Kirsten Dobroth reports from Kodiak, this summer the organization is in the process of surveying the Gulf of Alaska. Seawater temperature is 40 degrees Fahrenheit, trail wind is 300 knots. The ship is a bit smaller than the Coast Guard cutter Alex Haley, which is docked right across from the exploratory vessel at the end of the pier. The Okeanos Explorer is operated by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's in Alaska as part of an international effort called Seabed 2030 to map the entire seafloor by the end of the decade. Casey Cantwell is the operations chief for NOAA Ocean Exploration and guides tours aboard the vessel. She says the crew discovers new things almost every time they launch an expedition. We have better maps 
of Mars than we do actually of our own ocean. We know so little about the deep sea. As a whole, we know very little about the ocean. We're still learning every day, but particularly the deep sea is largely unknown and unexplored. Colin Little is an officer of the NOAA Corps and captains the ship. Standard helm, kind of a Mario Kart helm, right? That's left and right, just like a car. Little has led the ship for over a year now. He says expeditions usually range between three to four weeks before they shore up to restock on food like fruits and vegetables. Some of these places that we're going are super far flung and hard to get to. So there's a lot of transit involved and it's just getting the most bang for our buck is instead of getting there, being there for two days and coming back, it's like, let's be there and stay there for 20 days. While they're at sea, the crew has access to satellite internet anywhere. They use it to keep up with loved ones on land, but scientists also use that connection to publish their data for the public online. Thomas Morrow is a physical scientist for NOAA. He's part of the team that reads and compiles data as it's published. On our website, it is updated daily. So every day that we are out and we collect new information, um, that new data appears. And you can actually watch our expeditions uh, live in real time. That new data can include information about any new species they find. Scientists also publish temperature data as well as drafts of the seafloor maps they're creating. Those maps are primarily generated via sonar that can scan a spread of around 10 kilometers in some depths. But that isn't their only tool. The Okeanos Explorer is also equipped with robots capable of diving about 6,000 meters. That's nearly four miles below the water surface or about as deep as Denali is tall. One of the robots is about the size of a small car. It has arms to collect samples, as well as cameras and lights to find deep-sea flora and fauna, or even explore caves on the ocean floor. Cantwell, the vessel's operations chief, say they never get tired of exploring, and that it's a dream job for anyone interested in careers in marine science. One day we'll be diving on a shipwreck, the next day we'll be on these beautiful coral um, gardens, the next day we'll be on a hydrothermal vent, the day after that we'll be diving on a steep wall looking to see if there's been any slope failures. It is really, truly incredible. The crew expects to finish their adventures in Alaska this fall. Their next expedition will take them to Hawaii next year. Aboard the Okeanos Explorer, I'm Brian Benoit. The commercial season for King Salmon, or Chinook, in southeast Alaska opens on Saturday, July 1st. For trawlers across the region, it's the equivalent of New Year's Day, the beginning of the annual salmon harvest that lasts through until next March. For 50 anxiety-filled days this spring, it appeared that this fishery would not happen. On May 2nd, a federal judge in Washington ordered fishing closed to make more kings available to an endangered population of killer whales in Puget Sound. On June 21st, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court issued a stay of that order and allowed trawlers to fish as usual while the case remains under appeal. Photojournalist Barrett Wilbur grew up in Sitka, deckhanding aboard her family's trawler. She recently returned and spent a couple of afternoons visiting the docks, photographing and talking to trawlers as they readied for the opening. As she explains to Robert Woolsey, Wilbur found mixed emotions among the fleet. I think many people were excited and relieved that this fishery, which makes up often you know, 40% of their income, even if it's just a few weeks of fishing each year, that they could still do this. I mean, for a fishing family, it, that's a big... That's a big dent in your bank account. And so I think there's a lot of relief in terms of the economic value of the fish that people are going to be able to go out and, and make the money that they expect and need to make to kind of fulfill their needs. But I think there's also there's frustration, there's disbelief. I mean, there's people who 
thinking that they weren't going to be fishing July 1st, ripped out their hydraulic system to rebuild it, or people who rejiggered their boats and put on longline gear and decided to go longlining instead and just don't really have time to reconfigure everything to rush out for kings. And I talked to one fisherman who said that his wedding anniversary, I think, is July 3rd, and he and his wife had made plans to celebrate for the first time in, you know, decades their wedding anniversary together in person because he was always out fishing. And suddenly now that was off the table again. You mentioned people have been fishing years and years and years. There are portraits of um, Chester Jackson, who's um, 83. There's uh, Steve McMurray. He's on the seahorse. There's Spence Severson, who's on the dry ass. These guys have seen a lot over the years, but they have never seen anything like this lawsuit and the roller coaster ride that it's given people. What was it like talking to these guys? I mean, I love talking to fishermen, and I love hearing what they are thinking. And I think after growing up on boats, you know, it's a, to me, talking about fish and talking about the fishing industry and talking about fish politics is a real part of coming home. And so I really enjoyed talking to them. And I think the stories that you hear that people are willing to share, even just with, you know, with a stranger with a camera like I am, I'm maybe not quite a stranger because I am somewhat recognizable. Like I've been on the dock before and I'm wearing extra tufts and it's not like I'm a tourist down there in my poncho. But the the level of detail that people are willing to talk about, they take fishing so personally. I mean, especially trolling, which one of the guys I talked to, Chester, called it the, the most inefficient method of fishing possible. And it's kind of nicknamed the gentleman's fishery for that reason. Your relationship with fish and with the ocean is such an important part of what it means to make a living. And to have that kind of taken away from you by a judge unexpectedly is just really painful for people. I mean, and and some of these guys have been fishing for a long, long time. Chester talked to me about his stories about escaping from a native boarding school in the lower 48 when he was 15 and working his way back up across the country to get back to Alaska to to start fishing. And when he started, you know, it was before Alaska was a state and you just had to buy one permit and you could fish for everything kind of in any manner you wanted. And, and you just think about how how many changes people like him have seen during their lifetime of fishing and it's incredible. You have an image of uh, Chris Carroll, and Carroll told you something interesting about now that killer whales have been thrown into this mix, it's sort of created a false dichotomy that somehow it's trollers or killer whales. This was a, a feeling that people expressed a lot was this feeling of frustration that this lawsuit has created an image in the mind of the public, especially people maybe outside Alaska who aren't interacting as much or aren't seeing the real relationship that fishermen have with whales. Having those moments where you unexpectedly see a whale or unexpectedly see the dorsal fin of a killer whale cutting through the water in the morning as you're pulling the anchor, like those are some of the most special, magical moments that people love to fish for. I mean, that's part of the reason that they want to work on the water is to have these relationships with marine mammals. And I think this lawsuit creates this fiction that it's either fishermen or whales. And the thing that Chris said to me is he was really frustrated by that idea because 
at the end of the day, we're all eating the same fish, you know, and to set up this conflict as somehow being about tr- fishermen versus whales, I think really is ignoring the the bigger picture of really big changes in the ecosystem that are affecting fish, fishermen, and whales all together at the same time. That was photojournalist Barrett Wilbur speaking with KCAW's Robert Woolsey. You can see Wilbur's photo essay on Sitker's Trollers at ckaw.org. Well, that's all our local and state news for now. For KFSK, my name is Thomas Copeland.